it is a pleasure for me to be with you, friends. Uh, over the last year or so, I've been able to strike up a friendship with your pastor, and uh, uh, the more time I spend with him, the more time I respect him and appreciate him and admire him, and I'm thankful to God for the gifts that he's given to him. I have prayed for your church for the last several months. In fact, I've been praying for your church prior to you moving into this building. When I first met Ryan, this was just a hope and a prayer. And uh, we started praying for you regularly. I pray for your congregation every Friday and for Ryan in particular. And, uh, and then I heard that the building was secured. And I heard that this was an old plumbing place. So when I drove up on Friday, I wasn't expecting to see anything um, nearly as attractive as this place is. This is just beautiful, and I rejoice with you that God has given you such a wonderful place. And it is obvious as an outsider coming in that his smile is on your ministry and what you're doing, and I rejoice in that. I told Ryan yesterday, it is an extraordinarily and amazing thing that for a church this size, there would be so many people who would come out on a day like yesterday not to talk about marriage, though there's nothing wrong with that, not to talk about parenting or money or sex or any of those kinds of things, but to talk for an entire day about how we understand the Bible. And, and I said to Ryan, if anything I could see about this church, that in and of itself reveals volumes about the health of this congregation and its commitment and uh, there is no great work of God apart from the Word of God, I assure you, friends. And so I just want to commend you uh, for your appetite for the Word and your desire to be a place here in Prineville where the gospel of Jesus Christ is made known. It really is an honor for me to be here. Would you be so kind as to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1? Hebrews chapter 1. And I'd like to read the first three verses when you turn there. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down. At the right hand of the majesty on high. So reads the words of the living God. Friends, would you pray with me, please? Let's ask the Spirit of God to come and give us enablement this morning, shall we? Father, we have taken great delight this morning to gather into your presence. To gather into your presence with your people. We know that we can come into your presence every moment of every day. Truth be told, we're never outside of your presence. But we can talk to you while we're driving on the road. We can enter into a bedroom in our homes. We can talk to you when we're uh, on the job, working in the yard. But, Father, we thank you for the first day of the week when we can gather together with the congregation of God's people and do corporately, collectively, what we will be doing in eternity with the entire created realm. 
declaring your praise, declaring your worthiness, losing ourselves in your majesty and glory and greatness. We thank you, Father, for these dear musicians and for their willingness to lead us and contribute their gifts that we might give to you the praise you deserve. And now, Father, now this also is an act of worship, to read the Word of God, to hear the Word of God declared with an eagerness and a readiness to respond to the Word of God. All of that, too, is worship. But we recognize, Father, that while we love your Word and trust it without any reservation, it is not a magic book. And that we are then altogether and in every way dependent upon the ministry of your Holy Spirit if anything good is to happen here. And so, Father, we pray and ask that you would grant to us the Spirit's fullness, anointing, power, illumination, that your word would be spoken and heard and that people would look beyond my face, or Ryan's face, my mannerisms, or Ryan's mannerisms, that they would look beyond that, that their hearing would exceed beyond that, and that in the midst of a very human business of preaching, we know that we would hear the word of our Father in heaven. Take charge, come and have your way with us, and affect within us the responses that are in keeping with your pleasure and purpose. We love you. Amen. Have you ever felt that God was silent at the very moment you most needed him to speak? Have you ever felt that God was silent at the very moment you most needed him to speak? That you really wanted him to speak? That you desperately needed him to speak? But that all you heard from him were the deafening sounds of silence? When the pathologist tells you the tumor is malignant, When your OBGYN says, the baby you're carrying has Down syndrome. When you discover that your spouse has been unfaithful. That you've been laid off your job. That your teenager has been hit by a drunk driver. And so you come to God and you lay bare your heart and you cry out to him for explanation. Why? But that all you get in response is silence. Have you ever felt that God was silent at the very moment you most needed him to speak? Jesus knew that very same experience. When on the cross, he himself cried out for an explanation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what was the response of his father? There was no response. There was silence. Only silence. Altogether silence. Have you ever felt silent at a moment when you most needed God to speak? Jesus did. But was God silent forever? We are here this morning, dear friends, because three days later his father spoke. And his response came loudly and clearly when he raised his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. And so you see, brothers and sisters, it is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ that tells us that God's silence is never the silence of indifference. God's silence is never the silence of non-compassion. Rather, God's silence is always an eloquent silence. A silence that sets the stage for his eventual and most powerful speaking. And that, you see, is what brings us to the meaning of this opening paragraph in the letter to the Hebrews. It is a letter written to a small group of Jewish Christians who were living in Rome. People who had first heard the gospel preached by those who had been eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. 
People who, by the grace of God, had emerged out of the shadows of Judaism into the fully flowered substance of Christian faith. But at no small price, I might add. Because while Rome was ambivalent toward people of Jewish descent, Rome's feelings for Christianity were very clearly defined. Rome detested everything Christian. These are Christians here as you read through the letter to the Hebrews who've experienced sufferings, they've experienced imprisonments, they've actually experienced the confiscation of their property. And they're not novices, these believers, you see. They can put all the dots together in their mind with a psychotic named Nero on the throne and hungry lions waiting to be released into the Colosseum. These Christians can see that their allegiance to Jesus Christ is about to be put to the ultimate test. And just like you and me, they're asking all of the hard questions of God. Why are you allowing this to happen? Where are you? Don't you care what's taking place in our lives? Have you turned your back on us? Have you lost sight of us? Have you forgotten us? Maybe we ought to go back to Judaism. I mean, after all, Judaism is close to Christianity. We wouldn't embrace the Roman pantheon of gods. We wouldn't step into polytheism. But Judaism is rather close to Christianity, isn't it? And most of all, it's safe. Where is God? We need a word from him. But all we hear is silence. And then a whisper is passed through the underground. A letter has arrived. At the appointed time and most likely in the privacy of a home, the frightened congregation gathers together. A man, one of their leaders, stands to his feet, unrolls the parchment, and begins to read aloud. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, and those who hear these words read for the very first time, my friends, an unmistakable realization dawns on their minds. What were we thinking? Had we lost our heads? We can't go back to Judaism. You say, really? How do you get that out of this? I don't get your point. Why can't they step back into Judaism? Well, my friends, did you catch the series of contrasts here between verses 1 and 2? Notice the contrast in the timing of God's communication. In verse 1, long ago. Verse 2, in these last days. Notice the contrast in the recipients of God's communication. In verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. Notice now in verse 2, God has spoken to us. But the most striking contrast is with regard to the instruments of God's communication. In verse 1, the author says, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's easy enough for us to understand, isn't it? Those wonderful men and women of the Old Testament. But now we're told in verse 2, God is spoken to us by his Son. And actually, the way this reads in the original text, it doesn't read by the Son or by His Son. It reads simply by Son. And when that kind of construction appears in the original, it's for the purpose of stressing the nature of this one in whom God is spoken. In other words, over against the prophets, God has now spoken in this one 
who bears the distinct quality of being his own son. Now, friends, do you feel the emphasis in the contrasts? Then, now, to them, to us, by the prophets, by his very son. And the light goes on. How could we ever go back to Judaism? It's a colossal leap backwards. It reminds me of that scene you see in the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember? Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John, and before their very eyes, what happens? He's transfigured so that they witness with their very eyes all of his brilliance and glory and splendor, so much so that they fall to the ground. The glory of the Son of God is so overpoweringly brilliant and white. But as they take notice of what's going on, Jesus doesn't appear alone, does he? Two other people are talking with him. Do you remember who they are? Moses and Elijah. And so Peter sees Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, and he, uh, he thinks he really has his theology straight. He pulls it all together, and then he speaks. He says, Lord, how about if I build you guys three tabernacles? I'll build one for Moses, I'll build one for Elijah, and I'll build one for you. Here they are, three of the great revealers of the word of God. Moses, the giver of the law. Elijah, the premier representative of the prophetic order. And Jesus, the latest one in a lineup of revealers of the word of God. And summarily, God corrects him and says, This one is my son. Listen to him. Now that doesn't mean that the Old Testament scriptures are now irrelevant to us, friends. But it does mean that there has been a progression in the Bible's storyline, a forward movement from promise to fulfillment, from shadow to substance, which means now Judaism is no longer an acceptable alternative. Why, for example, would we ever return to the animal sacrifices knowing as we do that the ultimate Lamb of God has already been sacrificed? And that is why, you see then, interspersed throughout the letter to the Hebrews are five of the strongest warnings you will find anywhere in all of the Bible. And at the heart of every single one of them is this simple idea. Don't you dare go back. Don't even think about it. You've come out of the shadows. You've stepped into the light. Don't return to the darkness. Why not? Because Judaism and Christianity are not interchangeable religions. We have to be very careful, friends, when even our politicians talk about the Judeo-Christian God. You'll hear people like Oprah Winfrey say, you know, the God of Christianity and the God of Judaism is the same God. Wrong! The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God, but the God of the New Testament has revealed himself most fully as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. You deny the Lord Jesus Christ and you don't have the God of the Old Testament. You have a God that is a figment of your own imagination. Judaism and Christianity are not interchangeable religions. You must not turn away from Christ, the writer of Hebrews is saying to us. Why? Because, he says over and over again, Jesus Christ is better. That's the word in the book of Hebrews that repeats itself over and over again. Jesus is better. He is better. Better than what? Better than everything. Better than everyone. That's the principal purpose of this book, to display the unequaled greatness of the Son of God. Why? To reawaken faithfulness on the part of Christians who are thinking about going to their former manner of life because they think that doing so will make their present circumstances so much easier to endure.
Now, I want to thank you for being very patient with me as I've sought to set something of a historical context. But now all of this needs to turn on you. All of this needs to pivot on you. Is it just possible as of late that you have been tempted to go back to your former manner of life? Tempted to turn away from Jesus Christ? Because going back to your former manner of life would seem to make your present circumstances so much easier to get through and endure? Oh, I understand, given this congregation, Judaism may not be the allurement away from Jesus Christ. Not for you, but that's not to say that nothing else is. Maybe for you, the draw away from Jesus Christ is a lifestyle of pleasing all of your own appetites. A lifestyle given over to the reckless pursuit of sexual excitement. Pursuing a lifestyle of financial prosperity, professional success. Are you here this morning as a high school student? If you were not a Christian, you could cheat on a test to earn that scholarship. Steal from your parents to buy the new iPhone. Shoot up the steroids for the sake of enhancing your performance. And you could do all of it, you see, without the slightest twinge of unrest in your conscience if you were not a Christian. Are you negotiating with yourself this morning? Going back and forth? Wrestling with these kinds of temptations? And truth be told, you're not altogether certain what you intend to do tomorrow morning. You mustn't turn away. From Jesus Christ. To do so could prove to be eternally catastrophic because every sin carries with it the seed of total apostasy. No one wakes up and says, Today, I'm going to become an apostate. You say, Well, Art, all of that's easy for you to say. You don't know what I have to live with. It's not an easy thing for me to be a Christian. Quite frankly, it's never been. It costs me something nearly every single day of my life. It costs me professionally. It costs me socially. It costs me academically. So how do you expect me to persevere with all of the disappointments and difficulties and discouragements that come from naming the name of Jesus Christ? You persevere by giving to yourself a reinvigorating vision of your unequally great Savior. And as a consequence, you'll discover that you can't turn away from Jesus Christ. That you won't turn away from Jesus Christ. That His greatness is too compelling. His majesty is too alluring. That rather than forsake Him, you would rather, if necessary, give up everything to have Him. You know, friends, it has been said that liars figure and figures lie. But the statistics are very hard to refute. We are being told that young people in American evangelical churches are leaving congregations in unprecedented numbers. That like never before in the history of our country, young men and women 16, 17 years old are leaving churches just like this one in percentages that we have never ever seen before. And you see, very often well-meaning but naive Christians will respond to that dilemma in ways like this. Young people are leaving churches today in unprecedented numbers because uh, the youth group isn't cool enough, because the music isn't contemporary enough, because our technology isn't sophisticated enough. I want to tell you something, friends. Young people are leaving American evangelical churches today in record numbers, but it's not because the music isn't contemporary enough. It's not because the youth group isn't um, cool enough. It's not because our technology isn't sophisticated enough. It is because our portrait of Jesus Christ has not been compelling enough. That we have not set before them a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that shows him to be greater than money, greater than success, greater than power, greater than sex, greater than anything, greater than anyone. 
But since we've made Jesus very little more than a sanctified butler who exists to meet our needs, when young people are convinced that he's not meeting their needs as deeply as they would like, they walk away. And we have no one to blame but ourselves. What is it that makes Jesus so unequally great that we would rather give up everything to have him? Let me provide you with three simple statements that display the unequaled greatness of the Son of God. Firstly, He is the cosmic Lord. He is the cosmic Lord. In other words, He is the beginning and ending of everything. In the language of the Bible, He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. He is the one who calls everything into existence. He is the one who carries it all to its appointed destiny. And he is the one in whom it all culminates. He is its goal. It all ends in him. Watch how this all comes together. Verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. We'll come back to that. Through whom also he created the world. What a staggering statement. Especially when you set it in comparison to humanity. Even humanity at its best. Humanity at the height of its powers, its potentialities, for all of its technological prowess. You understand, friends, that human beings at their very best can't even create a particle of dust out of nothing. This Son spoke, let there be. And because his word is instantaneously performative, the entire universe obediently springs into existence. He created the world. Now, do you understand what this means? Have you paused to consider it lately? The Cambridge physicist Stephen Hawking, I don't know if that's a name you recognize, Time magazine has referred to him as the most brilliant theoretical physicist since Albert Einstein. Hawking tells us that our galaxy is 100,000 light years in diameter. You say, what's a light year? The distance light can travel in one year. You say, well, how fast does light travel? Pretty fast. 186,000 miles per second. Multiply that by an entire year of seconds and you end up with a galaxy that has a diameter of about 600 trillion miles. Moreover, we're told our galaxy is only one of 100,000 million galaxies. In fact, Hawking estimates that the most distant galaxy from ours is 8 billion light years away. You say, what does all of this have to do with anything? What do you find when you open your Bible to the very first chapter of the Gospel of John? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. A hundred thousand million galaxies. Paul says in the book of Colossians, by Him, everything was created. But His cosmic lordship extends beyond the mere creation of all things. It manifests itself in his sustaining of all things. Look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. We'll, We'll come back to that. And the exact imprint of his nature. We'll come back to that. Now watch. Now watch. And he upholds 
the universe. He speaks and a hundred thousand million galaxies come into existence. Now we're told he sustains it. He upholds it. This son in whom God has now spoken to us is not a hands-off deity. A deity who keeps himself at arm's length. Setting his creation in motion only to back off and allow it to run its own course independent of him. No, this son here is intimately engaged with his creation. And if you have eyes to see, his fingerprints are everywhere. I'm told that our sun has a surface temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That if it were any closer to us, we would burn up. Any further away, we would freeze. Our globe, I'm told, is tilted on an exact angle of 23 degrees. If it were not so tilted, vapors from the oceans would move north and south and develop into monstrous continents of ice. Do you realize that if our moon did not retain its exact distance from the earth, 239,000 miles, ocean tides would inundate the land completely twice a day? That if the ocean floors were merely a few feet deeper than they are, the carbon dioxide and oxygen balance of Earth's atmosphere would be altogether upset so that no animal or plant life could exist? Do you realize that if our atmosphere did not remain at its present density but thinned out even a little, many of the meteors that now harmlessly burn up when they hit the atmosphere would constantly bombard us? So how does this universe exist in this incredibly delicate balance. He upholds the universe. You realize, friends, there are no laws of nature that are self-sustaining. We draw our next breath, our heart beats its next beat, only because the sun sustains every single molecule of his creation. There is not one blade of grass that grows independent of his sovereign will. He upholds it all. But at this point, we're not to think of that image of the Greek god Atlas. Have you seen it? Atlas bent over, arms outstretched, and the globe resting on his back. No, the word here actually means to carry something forward to its appointed end. How many of you have seen the movie, movies, read the books, Anne of Green Gables? You know that story? about that little orphan girl who by and by finds herself in the care of a spinster woman by the name of Marilla and her bachelor brother Matthew. And as the story unwinds, she worms her way into their affections. They grow to love her and she them. And Years pass. When the time finally arrives for her to leave for college, they take her to the train station. And as the train is pulling out, she's at the window waving goodbye. And Matthew says to his sister Marilla, It's funny, isn't it? We didn't even want her. We sure were lucky. To which Marilla responds immediately by saying, It wasn't luck that brought her to us, Matthew. It was providence. And that's what this word means. Not only does God's Son create everything, He perfectly guides that everything to its intended destiny. Now you say, Art, how does he work all of that out? I have no idea. But he does. And what's more, what I do know is he does it all effortlessly. Look at it. He upholds the universe. How? By the word of his power. You know what that means? No stress. No burden. No sleepless nights. No ulcers. No wringing of the hands. No second guessing. Why? No effort. 
the sheer power of his word. But not only does he create all things, and not only does he sustain all things, notice what I intentionally looked, overlooked back in verse 2. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. About a year and a half ago, I was preaching just outside of London, England. And following one of the meetings, I was introduced to a man named Fred Catherwood. Or as I was told later that evening, Sir Fred Catherwood. And that night as I was laying in bed, it dawned on me. I shook hands with a knight. Have you ever shaken hands with a knight? No, I bet you haven't. I've shaken hands. I mean, it's a, a knight a real, like Lancelot or Edmund Hillary or Elton John. I shook hands with a knight. He'd been knighted by the queen. Appointed that title by virtue of his extraordinary service to the British Empire. And this here, friends, is very much the same thing. By virtue of the fact that this son has come to us, purchasing our salvation by the means of his death on the cross in our place, God raised him from the dead. He ascended into heaven where he has been appointed Heir of all things. That's not a mere expression. That is a title of dignity that announces his unequaled greatness. His supreme place in the entire universe. He gets everything. Now do you realize what this means? It means that everything that has ever been created has been created for the Son of God. The solar systems have been created for him. The angelic realms ultimately have been created for him. This planet and every single person on it, including you, has been created for him. From the largest galaxy to the tiniest microbe, everything is made for his pleasure and for his glory. And that includes you. I grew up in a church very much like this. And when I was a little boy, my favorite week of the year was the week that we would all go to church camp. And after a few years, I got the routine figured out pretty well. Following a Sunday morning service, the church bus would come, line up a couple of them outside the front of the church, and we would all load up our sleeping bags and our suitcases, get on the bus, drive a couple of hours into the Santa Cruz Mountains, get there, unload the bus, find our cabins, and about an hour after we arrived, we were told to gather together on the baseball field. And there was maybe 100, 150 of us. And they squeezed us together as tightly as we could possibly be squeezed together. And in front of us, maybe 30, 35 yards, maybe not that far, was a very tall ladder. And a man would climb to the top of the ladder. He would pull out his camera, ask us to be very still, and snap our picture. That was Sunday. On Saturday, just before we got on the bus to go home, we were given a cardboard cylinder. And every year I did exactly the same thing. I would pop open the top, slide out the picture, unroll it, and guess whose face I always looked for first? What are you smiling at me for, you self-absorbed people, you? Because you do the same thing I do. You look for yourself first! But with all due respect, you are not the center of the universe. And I am not the center of the universe. Jesus Christ is the center of the universe, and until we know our place in right relationship to Jesus Christ, we do not understand our place in this universe. He does not exist for us. We exist in every way for Him. 
This reveals his unequaled greatness. I mean, can this be said of anyone else that you can think of? That he's the creator, the sustainer, the inheritor of everything? He's the cosmic Lord. He's the cosmic Lord. Secondly, he's the incarnate God. Look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Oh, now, my friends, we have to be very careful with these two statements. Because in a very real sense, the glory of deity is not so much to be explained as it is to be adored. But the Old Testament in particular can help us at this point. Let me tell you what I mean. Where in the Old Testament was the radiance of God's glory seen? The visible glory of God. Well, You say the visible glory of God was seen by Moses in the burning bush. Exactly. It appeared at Mount Sinai at the giving of the law. It came upon the tabernacle in the wilderness. It came upon the temple in Jerusalem. But its primary location was at a place within that temple called the Holy of Holies. What was inside the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark, the the, the mercy seat. And on both sides of the mercy seat... The mighty cherubim, angels uniquely associated with the very presence of God. And in that place, we are told, above the mercy seat, between the cherubim, was the visible manifestation of the glory of God, God's Shekinah. It made it the most holy place on this planet. What does the Old Testament tell us, however, about that visible glory? Because of the idolatry of the people of Israel and the idolatry, most importantly, of the religious leaders in Israel, Ezekiel sees the glory of God lift up from that temple and leave the temple so that that temple becomes nothing but a God-forsaken shell. No longer the holiest place on the planet. You could have rented rented it out as a pig pen. All of which is very interesting because the book of Ezekiel concludes by saying that the glory of God would one day return to a temple. So how does the gospel of John open? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was with God and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we beheld his what? Glory, And what does Jesus himself say in the very next chapter? Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And John adds, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, do you see, friends, what the gospel of John is saying? No Jewish reader of the fourth gospel would have missed it. Ezekiel's promise has been fulfilled. The glory of God has returned to a temple. It is located in Jesus Christ. You want to see the glory of God? You look in the face of Jesus. He is the outraying of the glory of God. It's what Paul says in Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God. You remember that scene on the night before his crucifixion? Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. You remember Jesus' response? Come on, Philip. You've got to be kidding me. I've been with you all this time and you haven't pulled it together yet. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In the ancient world, friends, after a business deal was consummated, a document, a contract would be drawn up 
But instead of placing your signature on the line at the bottom, you would melt some wax and you would press the image of your personal stamp, maybe even on a ring, into that wax. You lift up your hand and what do you see? That the image in that wax is the exact imprint of the image on your ring. And that's the very meaning of this idea here. So Paul can say in Colossians 2, In him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Which means that Jesus is not the chief angel. Jesus is not the greatest of all created beings. That contrary to what Down Brown might suggest in the Da Vinci Code, Jesus is not an unusually great spiritual guide. He is nothing less than the eternal God who has come to us in human form. And therefore, his greatness is unequaled. Are you going to turn away from him for money, for a man, for success? He's the cosmic Lord. He's the incarnate God. Finally, he's the priestly king. He is the priestly king. Notice the middle of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down. Now, friends, sin does a great many things to us, far more than we could ever fully begin to understand, certainly not in the time we have here today. Sin is far more devastating than any of us here could ever fully comprehend. But among the most graphic is that sin defiles us. Sin mars us. It blemishes us. It stains us. Do you realize that in the eyes of God it makes us filthier than a dirty stable? The problem, of course, at this point is that everything about God is clean, brilliantly white. Not the slightest impurity is allowable in his presence, which means we desperately need purification. But how do we get clean? How do we get clean? I can't clean you up. You can't clean me up. Two kids in a mud puddle can't clean each other up. How do we get clean? You ever read the book of Leviticus? That's what that book is about. It's about dirty people getting clean. Dirty people are made clean by priests offering sacrifices. In fact, on one day each year, the high priest would enter into that holy of holies and sprinkle blood on that mercy seat that I told you about. And it brought a kind of temporary cleansing to pass, but it really didn't get the job done as evidenced by the fact that the priest had to keep on making sacrifices year after year after year, decade after decade, century after century. By the way, just as a little side note, You ever thought about the furniture inside that place, that temple? You know, God was very particular with Moses. I want you to make it exactly as I tell you. No room for creative freedom. You make it exactly as I tell you. Inside the Holy of Holies itself was just the Ark of the Covenant. Just outside the Holy of Holies was a room called the Holy Place. And in it were the altar of incense, the table for the showbread, Ten lampstands, two decorative pillars with bowls and chains. You know, friends, a lot of work went on inside that temple. The priests were very busy, morning and evening every single day. It seems to me that there is a piece of furniture that is missing from that place. Conspicuous by its absence? Something God forgot in his interior decorating? There is nothing on which to sit down. There isn't a chair, there isn't a bench, there isn't even as much as a stool. Why? Because it was never appropriate for a priest to sit. Why? Because his work of making purification was never done. All of his offerings and all of his efforts couldn't cleanse anybody of even one single sin. So why do it? 
Why all the drama? Why all of the ritual? Because of that to which it all pointed. The coming of this son. And when he was sacrificed, for the very reason that he is who he is, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, he declared from the cross a statement that had never ever before been uttered by a priest. It is finished. And then what happened? He was buried in a tomb. Three days later, he was raised from the dead. He ascended into the real holy of holies. And for the very first time in the history of redemption, a priest sat down. Why? Because, praise be to God, purification had been achieved. Because the work of cleansing had once and for all time been accomplished. A sacrifice that is sufficient for the vilest of your sins and mine. Public sins. Private sins, scandalous sins, secret sins, pre-Christian sins, post-Christian sins. Finished, done, account closed, no lingering balance as evidenced by what? This priest sat down. Where? At the right hand of the majesty on high. In the ancient world... The right hand of a monarch was the place of supreme majesty and absolute sovereignty. It is the place this son now occupies. He is the cosmic Lord. He is the incarnate God. He is the priestly king. He is the one who is unequally great. You say, so what does any of this have to do with me? It has everything to do with you. He is the cosmic Lord. You know what that means? He made you. The color of your hair. The dexterity of your fingers, the curve of your smile, your life is in his hands. You already belong to him. He's the incarnate God. You say, what in the world does that have to do with me? In him, your search for God can end in success today. You want to know God? You want to belong to God? You want to be known by God? You want to spend eternity in the presence of God? In Jesus Christ today. You can meet God. To walk away from him, however, in any direction is to court eternal disaster. He's the priestly king. What does that have to do with me? In him, you can be free of all of your sin and all of your guilt this morning. The fact is you'd be foolish to ignore him because he is the king to whom every person ultimately bows, either in this life or in the life to come. You must not turn away from Jesus Christ. You must not return to your former manner of life. Every hope for life and eternity resides in Him. You come to Him today. If you've come to Him before, then along with me this morning, you come to Him again, right now, right where you are. Because, my dear friends, the gift of eternal life is not for those who have believed. It is for those who keep on continually believing. You come with me this morning. You come to Jesus Christ. And if you have never come to him before, then of all people, you come to him today. We sang it this morning. Did you hear it? If we tarry till we're better, we'll never come at all. You come today. You come today. He will receive you. You say, well, how do I know that? I'll tell you, friends. It's because this one who is the cosmic Lord, the incarnate God, and the priestly king is also the friend of sinners. And that includes you, just as it includes me. Whatever you're enduring this morning, whatever your circumstances might be, stake your confidence in this.
God is not silent. He speaks. And he has spoken to you in these last days. And his word to you is simple, clear, and without ambiguity. God's word to you today is Jesus Christ. Don't dare turn away from him. Run to him. Come to him. Come now. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you and praise you that your word is so simple and straightforward and clear. We pray that you would forgive us for how easily we can muddle it and confuse it. But its message is so straightforward and plain, and it is as relevant and fresh as this morning's newspaper. We are thankful, Father, that you have seen us in our need, that you have recognized us in our dilemma, and motivated by nothing but your love, you have sent your Son to us. You have spoken to us, you who are the communicating God, you have spoken to us, not by signs and wonders in the clouds, but by something far more real and tangible. You have spoken to us in your very Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we come to him again this morning. We come to him with all that we are and rest our hope and trust and eternity in his accomplishments. We who are Christians, we come to you again reminding ourselves that we mustn't turn away from him for anything or anyone else. And we pray, Father, for those who are here this morning who are not Christians. Oh, may this be the day that they meet you, that they know you, that they embrace you, that they come to understand that there is a Savior who is a priest and a king, the incarnate God, the cosmic Lord, who has loved them, died for them, been raised for them, and now calls to them. Thank you, Father, for speaking so clearly. We embrace your Son. Amen.